Some of you remember the movie, The Day After Tomorrow, that came out in 2004. The, the backdrop to the story is global warming and the sudden worldwide cataclysmic events which result, melting ice caps, sudden drops in ocean temperatures, huge superstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, you know, your basic catastrophe fair. might be interesting to know that scientists on both sides of the argument panned the movie, and it's also listed as one of the top ten most unscientific movies of all time, but we won't get into that. The, the protagonist, Jack, is a uh, paleoclimatologist who knows what's happening and must get to New York to rescue his son, Sam, and Sam's new girlfriend, Laura, a girlfriend made during the movie because everyone knows you have to have some romance in the middle of worldwide mayhem and destruction. Else how will you get your wives to go with you to see it? So while everyone is fleeing south to Mexico, it's kind of funny, we become the illegals, um, Jack, um, Jack travels north uh, to New York. There's plenty of chaos, suspense, and death to go around to satisfy every man. Uh, but, but the good news is, Jack saves Sam and Laura from a frozen library in, in the city. All's well that ends well, and I, I suppose they lived happily ever after. Well, of course, uh, this is the, the screenshot of the film's final scene. The, the northern hemisphere is plunged into an instant Ice Age. This led film critic Roger Ebert to say of the movie, billions of people may have died, but at least the major characters have survived. Los Angeles is leveled by multiple tornadoes. New York is buried under ice and snow. United Kingdom, flash frozen. Lots of the northern hemisphere is wiped out for good measure. Thank God, and he did have little G, thank God that Jack, Sam, Laura, Jason, and Dr. Lucy Hall survive along with Dr. Hall's little cancer patient. Billions just died, but all's well that ends well. Because everyone knows that a story, any story, to be good has to end with, and they lived happily ever after. The good guys in the story have to prevail over the bad guys. They have to win in the face of insurmountable odds, incredible trials, and invincible enemies. Every, everyone knows that Jack must kill the giant. If the giant kills Jack, your children won't sleep well. If those monsters under the bed might win. We love good endings. Happily Ever After is, is, is considered an American specialty. I mean, we won't watch it. We won't buy it if it doesn't end well. In Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, the story, he wrote that in the early 1800s, the story actually ends with a noble, tragic sacrifice. The mermaid sees her prince marry another girl, and so she throws herself into the sea, the foam of the sea where she dissolves. That's happy. That won't work. So Disney fixed it. And, and Ariel marries Eric in the end. Because all's well that ends well. 
We've been studying the life of Joseph. I told you we needed it because of some stories, well, with some unhappy endings, call them tragedies, that have happened in our own community, even in our own church. And so for these past few weeks, we've seen our protagonist, that's the good guy, um, Joseph, facing some rather significant trials. And as we've kind of scratched our heads, we've been reminded that God is behind the scenes pulling the strings. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't forgotten, little Joey, that while all things are not necessarily good, all things are, are for our good. Well, well, I have some really good news for you today. There's a change in the plot. Yeah, while, while Joseph has been hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit to die, sold into slavery, falsely accused by his master's wife, unjustly imprisoned, things are about to get a lot better. He's going to go from the prison um, uh, to the palace in like one day, happily ever after. We smile, pass the popcorn. And this is not why I chose to teach through this story of Joseph, so that you would leave today looking for your day. Well... Not exactly. You see, today I want to I I remind you of a truth that we've learned, and then I want to ask you a question. Here, here's the truth. I don't know what you're facing, but God is in control, and the end of the story is a happy one for those who know Jesus Christ. You see, I've read the end of the book. We do live happily ever after. But we must remember that sufferings, trials, though they may only last for a little while, that little while may be until the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that? That's the day we're looking for. Peter told us when Jesus returns, we looked at this last week, when Jesus returns, we will receive the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, which will result in praise and honor and glory uh, to, to Him. And so our sufferings, our trials, our challenges, they do have an expiration date. There is a good ending coming. We get to live happily ever after, but it might be a little longer than we expect. And so I've suggested that we need to develop a longer view, what some have called an eternal perspective. This life, my brothers and sisters, this life is not all there is. Something better is coming. It might just take a little longer. I'm encouraged by that. Again, I've read the end of the book. The good guys win. That is the truth I want you to remember. But now here's the question that I want you to ponder for this morning. What if, what if things do get better? What if things get better in this life? Think about it. Both political conventions are now done. And both, I watched both, and they both, both candidates promised the same thing. 
Did you notice that? It'll get better if you vote for me. It's a bit encouraging. That means it doesn't really matter who you vote for in November. They promised whoever wins, it'll get better. Actually, my hope is not in a political party. See, my wife reminded me this week as I watched some, some rather disturbing speeches that had me screaming at the television. I'm serious. My wife re- seriously reminded me, Scott, our hope is not in chariots and horses, but in the Lord our God. But, but go with me on it, okay? Well, what if we elect the right guy and things get better? You know, you win the lottery. Your spouse suddenly has an epiphany and starts acting right. <laughs> Your children finally figure it out and start obeying. Your boss gets canned. Or you get a better job that pays twice as much. You, you make that 4.0 on the report card. What if the disease is cured, miraculously or medically? What if the cancer goes away? What if things get better? You see, I'm going to suggest that it might actually be easier to keep our eyes fixed on Christ in the bad times than in the good. Take a look around. To to, to cry out to God for help and deliverance when things aren't going well is a little easier. Keeps us dependent, keeps us focused. But what if He answers? For, For whatever reason you experience God's hand of blessing, is it possible when things start going better to forget God? I can take it from here. Just like the cupbearer forgot Joseph when things got better for him. What will Joseph do when things get better? We remember the purpose of this whole story was to take the Israelites to Egypt. I keep reminding you this every week because in the midst of peril, in the midst of prosperity... God's doing something. Take the Israelites to Egypt to make a great nation of them so that all nations of the world will be blessed through them. It was through this particular nation that both the Word of God and the Son of God is going to come. And so Joseph's suffering and and actually Joseph's prosperity were all part of God's plan to bless you. Imagine how Joseph must feel in heaven right now. Knowing the end from the beginning now, he knows the whole grand story. He knows that we're here today studying the Word of God as followers of the Son of God in part because he was faithful in peril and in prosperity. 
Next time you're facing difficult circumstances, I want you to remember Joseph. Who knows how far-reaching your trials might be? You know, I really doubt that Joseph ever entertained the thought in the midst of his prison 4,000 years ago that we would today be studying his life and be encouraged by it. I'm thinking that thought never came to his mind. Who knows how God might use your trials? Don't look just from the human side and become a victim, remember? Despairing, depressed, despondent, paralyzed. See it from the divine side and recognize that our sovereign God is carrying out His great plan in and for your life. Perhaps not only for your good, but maybe for the good of those around you. God's working to bring Jacob's family uh, to Egypt. Now, how is God going to do this through a slave boy? I mean, this is really a remarkable task to get Joseph from prison to the palace, to take him from being a lowly slave to prime minister who, who would then bring his entire family to another land. This is an amazing story. Who but God would have thought this up? How would, how would you have done it? Uh, think about this for a minute. Here we go. go. Here we go. Over in the Ash County Jail, there's this teenager. He's a, actually a foreigner. He's a migrant worker. He's been convicted of attempted rape. So now he's serving some time. And you... You need him to be vice president of the United States by the time he's 30. Move over, Mr. Biden. Tomorrow, a convicted felon from another country. The brothers would happen with that. From another country, a youth of 30 is going to take your job. How would you do that? God is never at a loss for a plan. And no matter how difficult and hopeless the situation you find yourself in right now, God is at work bringing about His purposes. It brings us to chapter 41. I'll give you the outline of the chapter in in five points. And and we're back at dreams. We're going to see a fourth dreamer. We remember the third dreamer is like dead. The second dreamer remembers the first dreamer. And then the first dreamer interprets the fourth dreamer's dreams, and the first dreamer is exalted by the fourth dreamer, and the fourth dreamer's dreams are fulfilled. That's a little bit confusing, so how about we go to the next slide and go to there. Uh, Pharaoh's dreams, we're just going to kind of bop back and forth. Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph remembered. Pharaoh's dreams interpreted. Joseph exalted. Pharaoh's dreams fulfilled. But you see, all of this talk about fulfilled dreams leads us to ask. We're supposed to ask, what? Wait a minute. What about the first dreamer? We had dreams happening everywhere, and they all seem to be fulfilled except Joseph's. What about his? You see, the author is brilliantly building suspense as God is marvelously fulfilling his plan. This is this is good story. So let's look at it, reading verses 1 to 8 to see Pharaoh's dreams. Now, you've got a part to play today, Okay. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, that word behold or lo, 
appears several times, and it's supposed to be attention-grabbing, all right? So I need you, when we read, when we say behold, we're going to say it together, all right? And behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, that's behold, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then Behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second dream, and behold, seven ears of grain came, uh, uh, came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and fullers. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, you see, he's trying to get our attention. It's a dream. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Basically, we have two new dreams that foretell the same truth, much like Joseph's dreams in chapter 37. First dream has to do with cows. We see seven sleek, fat cows. Now, I got to tell you, I have personally never thought of cows as sleek. Uh, The words speak of well-fed and thriving. Common for cows to wait in the water of the Nile, uh, cool themselves, and then to graze on the marsh grass that, that grew along the banks. So far, so good. Nothing unusual about this dream. What was uncommon, which actually turns the dream into a nightmare, was seven ugly cows came up and ate the fat cows. A couple of important points there that he's going to tell us later um, that have to do with the interpretation. These were the skinniest, ugliest cows he'd ever seen. And they ate the fat cows. You've got to understand, this is a troubling dream. Um, Pharaoh woke, woke up in a sweat because the giant just killed Jack. But he had some warm milk, went back to sleep, dreams again, second dream, heads of grain. Basically, same scenario, seven ugly heads of grain, thin, scorched by the east wind, the Shiraco wind, eight to seven healthy um, heads of grain. Now, um, an interesting thing happens in verse 8. In the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret the dreams. So, the magician and wise men, were, they're, they're of a priestly caste who involve themselves in the sacred arts and sciences of, of Egypt to include dream interpretation. I told you last week, there were schools, actually volumes written to help interpret dreams. Certain things meant certain interpretations. But we read they could not tell Pharaoh the meaning. This is a bit confusing. Have you ever heard of a fortune teller at a loss for words? That's bad for business. Exactly. Any, here's the, any magician or wise man would have come up with something and maybe arranged behind the scenes for the fulfillment. They couldn't. They were at a total loss for words. Why? 
Because God left no stone unturned. As easily as he had filled Pharaoh's head with the dreams, he just as easily emptied their minds of any interpretation. Well, except one dream interpreter, which takes us to point two, Joseph remembered, verses 9 and following. It says, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. Uh, But he had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream, and just or precisely or exactly as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He, he, Pharaoh, restored me in my office, but he, Pharaoh, hanged the other dude. Again, we see God... Um, we, see, we see God's clear hand of intervention. As I said last week, I have no idea why God waited for two full years to give Pharaoh these dreams. I mean, wh- why? I don't know. But he did, which meant it was for Joseph's best. I don't know why God has you in your in your trial, maybe for years. But I do know this. It's for your best. Now, if it had been left to the cupbearer, Joseph would have rotted in prison. In fact, it it was actually probably best for the cupbearer not to bring up the events surrounding his prior imprisonment. You don't go to Pharaoh and say, hey, let me tell you about the time you threw me in prison. But he remembers, he shares the story, I remember my offenses, my sins, and it's actually plural, possibly referring to how he had been imprisoned by Pharaoh for something, and maybe referring to the sin of forgetting Joseph. Verse 13, Joseph's interpretations were precisely accurate. This piqued Pharaoh's attention. Bringing us to our third point, the dreams interpreted. Now, we get a long section to read here. This whole chapter, by the way, is 57 verses. Get a long, long section to read. Hang in there with me, okay? Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Uh, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile. And they gazed in the marsh grass. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I've never seen for all the ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and the ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. A little cannibalism going on. When, but yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. These things were ugly. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream, and behold, seven years full and good came up uh, on, on a single stalk. And 
Thank you. Seven years withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, this is incredible, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land." So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of their, that subsequent famine, and it will be very severe. This has to do with being really, really ugly. Now look at verse 32. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. What? What are you talking about, Joseph? Joseph? Even languishing in prison for seven years after you had two dreams. He's a man of great faith. Let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt and in the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the food, good years coming in, store up the grain, food in cities under Pharaoh's authority. Let them guard it. Let the food um, become as a reserve uh, for the land for seven years of famine, which will occur so that the land will not perish during the famine. Okay. Joseph, according to Egyptian custom, was shaved and brought before Pharaoh. Don't miss that. Egyptians shave, and it's probably his head as well. Egyptians shave, Hebrews don't. Most commentaries rightfully, um, rightly point out the accuracy of the historical account. You see, when you read the Scriptures, there are little instances of historical um, accuracy that God just kind of drops in matter-of-factly to authenticate the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Little details, because God's in the details, and they're right. A few things to point out about these verses. Verse 15, it's actually in the emphatic. You see, Pharaoh calls Joseph in. He says, listen, I've heard that you only need to hear a dream, and you, in the emphatic, you can interpret it at once, right now. He is, he is positing a lot of confidence in Joseph. And so Joseph fixes it. Verse 16. And it sums up the whole of Joseph's life. It's not me. Isn't that the story of Joseph's life? This has nothing to do with me. It is God. I can't do it. God can. Truth of Joseph's life, I want you to know, is the truth of your life. I can't do this, but God can. In the midst of trial and in the midst of prosperity, God, I can't do this, but, but you can. 
You see, Joseph immediately takes the attention away from himself and points the attention to where it rightly deserves to go. What an opportunity Joseph had here. He'd been in slavery and imprisoned unjustly for 13 years. Here was a chance to shine, to put himself forward in the presence of the most powerful man in the land. Here was a chance for safety and deliverance, for fame and fortune. Be like the president of the United States calling you into the Oval Office and him saying, you know, I hear you're really smart about whatever it is you're smart about. I'm having some problems with my daughters. Can you help me? Can you give me some advice? And you say, well, I do my best. Why don't you have a seat there and I'll tell you what to do. Joseph could have said, I'm, I'm pretty good at dream interpretation. I'm batting 500 right now. I'm on my way to batting 1,000. Tell me, tell, tell, tell me your dreams. Give me a crack at it. But he didn't. He acknowledged God is the interpreter of dreams. And for Joseph, safety and um, deliverance, fame and fortune came anyway. We must be careful to give God the glory for his work in our lives. Five times standing before Pharaoh, five times standing before Pharaoh, he uses God's name. It's not me. You're looking in the wrong place. Pharaoh, it's not me. It's God. God gave you the dreams. Uh, Interpretations belong to God. God gave me the interpretations. God has told you what he's about to do, and God is going to do it. And this is all the more incredible when you realize that every time Joseph mentions God, he puts a definite article in front. He is standing before Pharaoh who was seen as deity. And he's standing before him and he says, I want you to tell you something. This is not about me, but this is about the God, Pharaoh, and you ain't it. You have no power over the future. You don't even know what the dreams are about. Let me tell you what the God is going to do. This is a clear declaration of the God of Israel as the one and only true God. Here he is, 30 years of age, from the most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh, you're not God. Let me, let me tell you about the God. What is it that intimidates you? Another little aside, Joseph says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about what he is going to do. God is going to bring a worldwide famine. How quickly we are to defend God in the midst of natural calamity, right? God didn't bring the earthquake. God didn't bring the hurricane. God didn't bring the flood. That's not exactly what Scripture teaches. He brings them, but they're for our good and His glory. This little declaration could have cost Joseph his life. He's quite used to his life hanging in the balance. Pharaoh dives in, tells Joseph about the dreams. Again, verses 19 uh, and following, uh, Pharaoh adds a detail we didn't know before. These are the ugliest 
cows, and after they'd eaten, they're still ugly. Two um, facts play into the interpretation of the dreams. Um, after the abundance of the first seven years, they're going to be forgotten. They're still skinny. And these are the ugliest cows, meaning this famine is really severe. Now, before we move to the next point, we need to look closely at verses 33 to 36. Joseph tells Pharaoh, in light of what's coming, you need to find a wise and discerning man to administer the seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine. Here's my question. Where did Joseph come up with such an incredible plan at a moment's notice? Look at the plan. It's, it's brilliant. People have been doing it ever since. Collect 20% for the first seven years, stored in population centers for easy distribution later. And this little Hebrew slave prisoner came up with that all on his own. No. God gave him the interpretation of the dreams and the plan. Some, some people want to suggest that Joseph is positioning himself right here to be elevated to prime minister. Pharaoh, you need to find some really smart dude to take care of this problem. Who, moi? R really? I do not think that's what happened. Joseph was a Hebrew prisoner. Yes, he was hoping for release. But to see this as a job interview is stretching it just a bit. Rather, it is more likely that just as God gave Joseph the interpretation, he gave him the plan, the wisdom about what to do. In other words, I want you to get this. It wasn't Joseph positioning himself. It was God positioning Joseph. This brings us to the next point. Joseph exalted. Look at it with me, 37 to 45. We've got to move very quickly. Now this proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all the servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God, and he doesn't use the definite article, by the way, it's very interesting. Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And according to your commandment and all my people, uh, all my people shall do homage only in the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in, this, in his second chariot. They proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one is going to raise a hand or a foot in the land of... they got to take permission, you know. Father, may I? Then Pharaoh named Joseph zaphnath paneah and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. First of all, it's very clear in verses 38 and 39 that, that Pharaoh got the point. He understood that it was God who was at, at work here. There's a divine spirit in this boy. He doesn't quite get that he's the only God. He doesn't use that de definite article. But, 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 but Joseph, standing before the mightiest man in the world, had heard about the God. Another thing, verse 40, Pharaoh says, you will be over my house. This is brilliant writing. This is the third time since he's been in Egypt, he's been in charge of someone's house. He's in charge of Potiphar's house, and the, and the, and the place prospered. He's in charge of the prison, and the jailhouse rocked. And now he's 
There's a little joke. And now, um, <laughs> okay, maybe a little. Um, and, and now he's over Pharaoh's house. And we see that the people are to submit to Joseph's order. Literally, they're going to kiss you. They're going to kiss your hands and your feet. In all of Egypt, no one is greater than you except me. I have a question about that. I just, I just wonder. <laughs> Do you suppose the first thing that Joseph did was to pay a little visit to Potiphar's house? to Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. You say, nah, Joseph wasn't vindictive. Really? Keep that in mind when we see how he deals with his brothers. Uh, We see that symbols of royalty are given to him. Verse 42, the signet ring, which gave him authority to issue royal edicts, robe of, of fine linen, uh, which was the clothing of the course. This is the third time that his clothing... It plays a significant part. God, I mean, his, his father gave him a robe. His brothers ripped it off. And Potiphar gave him a robe. Mrs. Potiphar ripped it off. Now Pharaoh gives him a robe. Gives him a golden chain. Uh, it was worn as a mark of distinction. Verse 43, perhaps as a one-time act, Joseph rode through the capital city in a chariot right behind Pharaoh. Everyone would know who was second in command. Verses 44 and 45, critically important. Perhaps for the purposes of naturalizing Joseph, that is, making him an Egyptian, they did several things. They had already shaved him. They had dressed him like an Egyptian. He no doubt spoke Egyptian. He observed Egyptian cultures and ate Egyptian food. Now they gave him an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Paneah, whatever that means. Lots of argument. They gave him a new wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, who was the priest of On. On, about 10 miles north of modern-day Cairo, is also Heliopolis, which was the center of the worship of the sun god Ra. Make no mistake about it, Pharaoh is giving him Potipharah's daughter, Asenath, to fully draw him in to Egyptian life and religion. You see, he's actually saying, yeah, you got the divine spirit. It's probably raw. Let me give you the priest's daughter. My question is, why not go with it? He's, he's, he's down there alone. This serving his father's God hasn't worked so well for him. Why not just give in to the culture around him? Here's the question of the morning. How would you respond in times of blessing, in times of plenty, when things are going really well? You see, I am suggesting that it's very easy to keep our eyes fixed on Christ during the difficult times. What about the good times? It's very simple to be faithful in the pit. What about in the palace? Listen to this. One author suggested that Joseph was in greater peril than he had ever been. We're out of time. Let me just sum up the rest of the chapter for you. I'm actually going to walk away from my notes. The rest of the chapter, and I encourage you to read it through verse 57. Um, the famine um, happens, and he, and he stores up the grain just like he said he was going to. And then he opens the storehouses for the people of Egypt and the people of the earth because the famine was severe. 
And, and, and he has a couple of sons, one named Manasseh and one named Ephraim. Those are Hebrew names. Those are not Egyptian names. And those are names that have to do with his God. God has made me forget my sufferings. God has blessed me in the land of my suffering. He kept his eyes firmly fixed on Christ in prosperity, in blessing. Last thought I'm going to leave with you. Go ahead, worship team. Go ahead and come on up. Last thought I'm going to leave with you is this. Question of the morning, um, how are we going to handle prosperity? How are we going to handle blessing? Worldwide famine. Worldwide famine that God brought. Here's what I want you to hear. There's not anything that God will not do to fulfill His promises to you. Even if it means starving the entire world because God loves you. He knows where you are, and He hasn't forgotten you. Let's stand for prayer.